I want to welcome you back to God Size Living. Uh, last week, we started a, a podcast uh, where we're taking on a subject that has a little bit of theological depth. We've kind of reached this point in Daniel's prayer, chapter 9, where he's, he's beginning to ask God for some specific things on behalf of the nation of Israel. And as we get into this, it just really kind of raises a question about prayer that I think uh, I've, I've encountered many times as, as people speak to me about what God is or is not doing in their lives. And the question is, does prayer really accomplish anything? Now, I, th- I think that you and I know that certainly prayer does accomplish something. The question ultimately becomes, what does it accomplish? To get into this, uh, last week we kind of set the stage and I set in front of you the fact that, that there are several camps of thought when it comes to what prayer does or does not accomplish. Uh, there are, are some camps out there that say in almost radically, hey, look, prayer, does it accomplish anything? Of course it does. You know, pray rightly and you can heal people, pray rightly and you can you can change you can change uh, the circumstances that people are are facing. Uh, certainly, we're all familiar with that particular camp. Then on the uh, the other side of the coin, there's camp number two is a camp that would say, "Well, no, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, no, it doesn't accomplish anything. Prayer prayer is nice, it's good, it's something that God wants us to do, but it doesn't accomplish anything. Why? Well, the second camp is really kind of centered in the idea of a, of a God who is sovereign. That is the belief that before time even began, God so ordered all of history that what occurs today occurs according to his will from before the very beginning of time. And, and so this camp would say, it, from a human perspective, it seems like our prayers are doing something, but maybe they're really not. And so for this camp, you have to ask the question, but wait a minute, doesn't, if you're saying prayer doesn't accomplish something outside of us, does it do something inside of us? You have to ask this particular camp that question. Now, between these two camps is maybe another position that looks at things through a biblical lens and says, well, look, we do believe prayer accomplishes something. But as we get to the what, uh, is there a sense in which prayer accomplishes not only something inside of us, we know that, but also something outside of us, external to us. Um, Last week, I shared with you that to really answer the question, you pick up uh, a number of scriptures that are used by all camps to talk about prayer. Uh, Three categories of scripture. The first one is those scriptures that demonstrate that prayer does accomplish something. I think that's inarguable. So we're going to put that as the first category. Category number two are scriptures that point to what what God does change and what he does not change through prayer. I want to look at some scripture that says, look, prayer does not change God. But but does it change anything? Of course. So let's look at those. And then thirdly, third type of scriptures are those that suggest that there are prayers that God will not respond to. I gave you an example of this uh, last week. If I were to pray a prayer in the name of Allah, Allah, well, guess what? There is no Allah. It's a human construct. There's, There's God, there's Jesus Christ. There's no Allah. And so I don't expect there to be a response to a 
prayer that's spoken outside of the name of our God. So today I want to take on this first category, scriptures that demonstrate that prayer does accomplish something. We're going to look specifically at James chapter 5. James chapter 5 is a scripture that, in my opinion, demonstrates that prayer is inarguably efficacious. Um, I think it's the, the chapter of scripture that's probably most turned to by those camps that say, look, I'm going to prove to you that prayer accomplishes a great deal. If you want to take out your Bibles, I'm going to be in James chapter 5, beginning verse 16 and following. Uh, this scripture, as you look at it, serves as a New Testament interpretation of a scene from the Old Testament book of First Kings. So I want to start there. Remember with me that First Kings chapter 17 takes us to a time in history in which one of the most evil kings in all of Israel's history occupied the throne. After a succession of bad kings, each of which led Israel further and further away from God, Ahab takes Israel's throne at the death of his father, Omri. Just a side note here, one of the ways I've always remembered who Ahab was is through Herman Melville's classic novel, Moby Dick. Melville, you'll remember, wove into his novel theological motifs which make it both interesting and instructive to this day. It's one of my all-time favorite books. Uh, one of these, of course, is the motif of obsession. If obsession has the power to destroy lives, as was the case in the fictional Captain Ahab in Melville's novel, set to, to kill that white whale. Well, if that's true, there's little in history to match the obsessiveness of King Ahab, the man whom Melville's character is named after. King Ahab of Israel, his obsession with a foreign wife named Jezebel. Despite God's call upon Israel's kings to refrain from marriage outside of Israel, Ahab not only married this physician woman, but gave her free reign towards infusing Israel with idol worship that was native to her homeland, namely the worship of Baal. Under Ahab and Jezebel's reign, I think it's proper to describe it that way, the places of worship throughout the land of Israel, along with many of its homes, became infested with idols to God's consternations. As you reach the 17th chapter of 1 Kings, God has come to a point when in order to bring Israel back to himself, pain must be in the offering. Enter God's prophet, Elijah. Question, do you remember the word that Elijah brought to King Ahab as Ahab continued to lead Israel away from God? You'll find it recorded in the first verse of 1 Kings 17. I'm just going to read it to you, Lord. Would you give us your guidance? Here's the verse. It says, Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. So let's examine what's going on here. Elijah's a prophet. That's important. Why? Because prophets never speak for themselves. They're mouthpieces for the Lord who speaks through them. 
Elijah indicates that here through the words, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives before whom I stand. What's Elijah saying? He's saying to Ahab, the words I'm going to bring to you, they're not my words. They belong to God. God is getting ready to shut off the heavens from rain. And as he does, drought and famine will fall upon Israel. If I, if I put this into my own words, Ahab, you've led Israel so far away from God, he's getting ready to get you and all of, of the nation's attention. There's going to be pain. The pain is not meant as punishment. It's meant to call you back. It is the discipline of the Lord. Israel may not be ready to listen now, but they will get there. Now, I want to recognize something. So, someone's going to say to me, but Luke, look at the verse. It says, Elijah says that the drought will be broken by his word. That is by Elijah's word. There shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. That's, that's what the scripture says. So isn't Elijah's word causative? Don't his words indicate causality? So, so how would you answer that question? From a human perspective, the answer would be what? Yeah. Elijah's going to give the word and there will be rain and there will be dew. But let's get deeper than the human perspective. Our scripture here is indicating that Elijah's word is not his own. Who does it belong to? God. Ultimately, then, the cause for the rain that will be shut off and then three and a half years later turned on is who? It's God acting according to his will. So here, here's what I want you to make note of. When you read this part of the Old Testament, a, a prayer principle is established that I've always found helpful. It relates to the very essence of what prayer is. What is prayer? Prayer is God's invitation to you and me to join him in the work that he is doing. Now, here's the beautiful thing. While God is doing the work, think causality, he's choosing to do it through you and I. We, like the prophet Elijah, become instrumental in the work that God does, while at the same time recognizing that at all times, it's not you or I, but God alone that causes all things that happen to happen. Now apply that to the question we're asking. Does our prayer affect anything? Well, on the one hand, we would say on the basis of this Old Testament scripture, no. It wasn't, it wasn't Elijah's words per se that affected the shutting of the heavens. It was God's word through Elijah. That, of course, takes us to the other side of the equation. Does our prayer affect anything? Well, the prayer would have to be what? Yeah, yes. Why? Because God is choosing to work through the word of Elijah to effect change, the shutting up of the heavens and subsequently the rain and do that follow. So let me take you to the New Testament scripture that helps here. It's, as I said before, James chapter 5, verses 16 to 18. Remember, as we begin to look at this section, that James is acting interpretively under inspiration as he gives us this word. I want to read it. I want you to pay attention to the way that James now interprets what happened to Elijah in 1 Kings 17. How do these words help us answer our question? Does prayer accomplish anything? Here, here's the words. Lord, give us your direction as we read 
your word today. James chapter 5, beginning at verse 16, it says, The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like our own, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain upon the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. So what's happening here? James, the brother of Jesus, is writing some 930 years after Elijah. Remember this. It's about 60 AD. It's a period in which the Christians are being persecuted under Nero. As the Christians face hardships and suffering, James lifts up the act of prayer as essential to the life of the church. He's addressing the body of Jesus as it encounters persecution, pain, and suffering. As he addresses these first century Christians, does he indicate that prayer is causative, effective? Well, again, on the one hand, we would say, yes, yes, he does. Specifically, he says, quote, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working, end quote. So question, why, why does he phrase it that way? Why does he say the prayer of a righteous person has great power? Here, I want to take a little time out. So I want to comment on an abuse. Over my years in ministry, I have seen this passage so abused and turned into law. Here, here's what happens. Well-meaning people in the church want to lift up the place of prayer in our lives. That, that's good. But what do they do? They turn to James 5, this scripture. Then, on the basis of this scripture, they maintain that in order for your prayer to work, you have to be a righteous person. This is interpreted to mean, if you're faithful and you have mastery over your sin, your prayers will be effective. But if you're not faithful, if there is some place of sin in your life that you do not have mastery over, your prayers will fail. Now think about what's happening. The effectivity of prayer is now being placed upon who? On a person. Let me ask you this. Does the Bible ever teach that? I, I would argue no. We'll, we'll get into this more uh, next week, but the, but the answer is no. Why? Because the causality of prayer is always what? Singular. God is always the cause of prayer's effectiveness, not man. To demonstrate this, James, acting interpretively, uses Elijah as an example. He tells us that Elijah prayed fervently for both the drought and for the rain that would follow. Now remember how he prayed. When he prayed, he did so instrumentally. He was just the instrument. God had told him to pray. God had told him what to pray. God had told him what he was going to do. So again, there's good scriptural ground for saying that, yes, our prayers are effective. They accomplish something. But on the other hand, we would have to say what? That's not really our prayer per se that's accomplishing it, but it's God working through that instrument. To say that the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it works is to say that when our prayers are rightly released to the will of God, God works through them instrumentally to cause his will to occur. God, through his will, is the causative agent of prayer. Our prayer is the instrument through which he is working as our prayers are released to his will. 
I want to close on that note uh, this week. This week, I told you this is an in-depth subject. Um, I think it's good that we we've kind of introduced our topic and been able to say, look, prayer does accomplish a great deal. Now, in saying that, we're also acknowledging that our prayer is just the instrument through which God is working. He is the causative factor. Next week, we're going to take on a couple uh, of additional questions. So what does prayer actually change? Does it change God? Or does it change me? And then secondly, are there prayers that God does not work through? Then we'll be back into the, the narrative of Daniel and the specific petitions that he places before God on behalf of Israel. I hope this is helpful. I know it's deep. Uh, I'm enjoying it, though. Let's let's uh, close out this week by uh, just lifting one another up in prayer. I, I will be praying and believing that prayers do accomplish a great deal. Uh, we'll release our prayers to the will of God. But I'm going to be praying for you and your family. I, I ask you to pray for me and my family. And until we meet again next week, may you have a God-sized week.